0: Hey, Johnny here from Propane Fitness, and I'm just here to quickly introduce part one of our podcast with Eric Helms. We've chatted with Eric multiple times before on the podcast, but this one is easily the best podcast we recorded with him. We chat about how he manages his own diet and training at the moment and how he's actually taking a slightly more flexible approach to this diet than you might expect. We go into some of the elements of RPE, chat about his pyramid books, and also talk a lot about neuroses and mindset when it comes to dieting and getting lean, as well as plenty of other ridiculous and silly things. So this is part one. Next part will be released next week. Hope you enjoy it. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. We'll speak soon. What we're dealing with here.
1: (laughs) That's important, very important.
0: Anything you definitely wanna talk about, don't wanna talk about, um, talk about your book? Don't want to talk about your book?
1: Books? I don't, I don't, there's nothing I don't want to talk about. Like, if you ask me whether I'm going to have it a second or not, it would be. But.
0: <laughs> okay. We'll going to open with that. Just to get about out. Well, that's what everyone will be thinking. That, like Eric Helms' new podcast. I wonder whether they're going to ask him about his for a second. Yep.
2: Should we put the light on? Nope. Oh, that's a bit creepy, isn't it? That's okay. What do you think?
0: (laughs) It looks pretty comfortable for you, guys. (laughs) Just like... It's an (laughs) SS Hey! Where are we... uh... Take propane seriously, because we burn our souls and eyes. It's it's actually a daylight lamp. It's too bright. Because in the UK, we don't get... um, sunlight yeah any sunlight so
1: ever yeah mm,
0: unlike unlike where you are as i assume brilliant oh that looks horrible what a horrible <laughs> view
2: <laughs> disgusting man i feel bad for you but. Yeah. Giant ship out All right, there.
1: That's,
0: that's incredible <laughs> have you have you are you at your house i'm guessing yeah yeah have you always lived yes.
1: there uh yeah we've, we've been in this apartment for a little while and this is our deck
2: that's your boat and that's your...
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's yeah. my boat I just arrived recently from Australia I know the yeah. um,
0: I know the pyramid books are doing well but I mean that is <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, yeah. your response is you must be balling yeah
2: <laughs> that you're driving a ferry now like because
1: <laughs> <laughs> the normal the normal
0: super yachts don't cut it so
2: you're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain, with none of the gimmicks, with your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. So do, do you have any topics that you want us to, to cover as we just go through? Ask, just or? that um, Oh, did you? Mm. Okay. So we, we've got a list of a couple of things. Um, if there's any of this that you'd rather not talk about or discuss, then... Uh,
1: hey. Are you guys, uh, I feel like you guys are going to ask me strange things when you keep asking me we, that. Like,
2: yeah, <laughs> we, our first question is, yeah, but. Is the traffic going to be a problem? Might be. Should we shut the window? Are you, like. I'm boiling. You hot? boiling. hot. Could you, have you got something underneath yeah. that? It's quite revealing, so I don't really Just, to... just wear we're stringers, guys. <laughs> That's what oh. we need. Just the, the ones that, just show the. Yeah. I've got one. I'll put it on team. if you guys Bay want to fitness podcast.
0: We have a very special guest with us today. His name is Eric Helms. You probably haven't heard of him. He's quite new to the industry. He actually used to coach both of us until he became too busy and too big time and and left us for bigger and better things. But uh, Eric, I'll probably murder your qualifications. So, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, accolades, experience in the industry, and what you're
1: doing today? Yes, yes, certainly. So, I'm I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm a researcher. I'm an athlete. And as they alluded to, I only work with. Uh, Talented athletes, so I had to stop working with both <laughs> Johnny and Yusuf. Um, <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I actually work with everyone at all levels. Um, however, I am in the midst of a PhD, actually towards the tail end now, in strength and conditioning. And um, that has just taken up an inordinate amount of my time, as as one would expect. And I uh, have had to not take on the same client load so that I don't give crappy service to my people. Um, but anyway, I, I got involved in lifting... Um, geez, I guess about 12 years ago and uh, just got obsessed with trying to get huge and trying to lift heavy things uh, and that extended into the science behind it and the philosophy and kind of coaching aspect behind it. I became a personal trainer. Fast forward to today, I've got a, uh, a master of philosophy uh, where I did a thesis on uh, manipulating macronutrients and protein intake in uh, dieting strength athletes. Um, master's degree in the States in exercise science, and I'm at the tail end of my Ph.D. Uh, in strength and conditioning, looking specifically at uh, auto-regulation in uh, powerlifting training. Uh, and I'm one-fifth of the Hydra that is uh, 3D muscle journey.
0: Yeah, yeah
1: Hydra. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so we, we coach drug-free lifters of, of all walks of life, except for Yusuf and Johnny, and that's basically uh, me. That's what I do.
2: Cool. I think, as we should clarify on every podcast, me and Johnny don't take drugs. That wasn't what (laughs) Eric was was trying to imply there.
0: Yeah. I used to coach Joey and Yusef, but I only coach drug-free powerlifters now. Yeah, thanks for the the take there. Yeah.
1: The best part is that I also said I don't coach you because you're not a high enough level athlete, which means even with drugs, you guys are still (laughs) It's
0: Just a really nasty thing to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, So, so... are you going to do it or am I? Oh, fine. Well, so we, we normally ask everybody, um, well we don't ask everybody. We've, recently we have been, the, the majority of our content that is the most popular is us answering difficult would you rather scenarios. So we Ooh. thought, you know, you're a sensible guy, we'll see what, see what you have to say to one of our would you rather questions. Yousef's teed one up for me to ask you that I personally don't feel comfortable saying on the internet. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that one, and uh, we're gonna get. Used. He's lying. This
2: was was Johnny's idea. Okay. I can't read it, man. All right. Are we
1: doing like, like fuck Mary kill or something like that online? This is no, gonna no, group. no. Um,
2: so yeah, the, the question that I've I've been bursting to ask you, Eric, is uh, mm. would you rather change gender every time that you sneeze, or lose the ability to distinguish between a baby and a muffin?
1: definitely changed gender every time I sneezed.
2: Okay, can you Does explain? I mean,
1: I, well, easy. Yeah, so I get a better life experience, I, um, I, I get to learn what, what happens in the women's bathroom, um, I'm also pretty good at looking at the sun and making myself sneeze again, so if I'm not feeling whatever gender I am for the day, and obviously because the other choice would be accidentally eating babies, I think that's probably a good oh, choice.
2: Just out muffins. You could say, "I'm, I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to eat a muffin again, just in case." <laughs> it might also right, be like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> you could also for I a like muffin.
0: muffins, so you like muffins. I, see, I told yeah. you. Yeah. You would say that we predicted you would.
1: I... You talk about liking muffins.
2: We'd be talking to a woman right now, though, because you sneezed about just ten before. minutes ago.
1: But when did I sneeze before that?
2: With, well, that's true. And what did he yeah. start
1: off as before he first oh, sneezed? <laughs> right. You, yeah. Don't don't assume my gender. Okay. <laughs>
2: Oh, we've been in trouble for that We're not going to
0: be able to post this now. Cool. All right. So that's the, I'm not, I'm not saying the other one, um, but it involves fingers in bums. So uh, be, yes. tha- be thankful that yes. Okay. Yep. Um, so how, obviously the last time we spoke, well, I don't know when that was, probably quite a while ago now. And I remember when we chatted, you were balancing Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, PhD, Mm. being a coach, super busy, and you had kind of a way of prioritizing that as part of a whole picture. So we'd love to know a bit more about how has your training diet evolved since then,
1: and what are you what are you shooting for goal wise at the moment? Well, a wonderful thing happened to me called a femoral acetabular impingement, uh, which made some choices for me. Uh (laughs) So yeah, in uh, let's see, I think that was end of twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen. Uh, My hip started really playing up, and um, I started uh, getting back pain, uh, contralateral IT band pain, and then from the the contrapart hip pain on that other side eventually. Um, And my squat actually prevented me from being able to train on back squats because of the pain. And my squat fell from like uh, 222.5 down to, I want to say... Like, not being able to do a rep with 190 without pain. Um, I suspected <laughs> there was some type of impingement going on, but I needed to get it confirmed. Uh, so I saw, um, I got an MRI done, x-ray done, and I saw, um, sorry about the ferries. That's
0: just Eric's, <laughs> Eric's yacht in the background. Make, make <laughs> <you know. laughs>
1: yeah, the books are doing great. Um, no, so yeah, the uh, anyway, so I got it checked out and... Um, come to find that I had a, a small labrum tear and a what's known as FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, which just means that uh, over time, typically, um, the shape of my hips, which is not necessarily ideal for uh, deep squatting, uh, 12 years of lifting, and, and then including an Olympic lifting, so high velocity, very deep uh, squats on top of um, you know high hip angle, heavy loads, like low bar squats. Um, it degenerated, not really degenerated, actually, it generated. Um, bone spurs on, on the neck of my femur and the lip of my uh, my hip, my acetabulum, to where they started contacting one another and damaging uh, the labrum. Um, so yeah, I've actually switched at this stage completely to doing front squats, which allow me to hit depth with a straight back angle so I'm not impinging. Um, and I, the last powerlifting meet I did was in June, which went pretty well. I uh, still squat at 222.5, so I've been able to basically maintain strength, uh, but not improve it at all. That, that, you know, That's basically two years of squatting the same loads. Uh, but my bench is, is is doing well, so I benched uh, I think 150 in that meet, and I've done 152, 155 in training. Um, so really, I basically I basically train like a powerlifter who doesn't know that you're not allowed to put the bar on the front of your body. <laughs> you you back squat <laughs> in the meet now, right? Yes, I did back on the meat. I was I've been able to, um, basically, when a meat comes around, I can get away with about three or four heavy, uh, low bar sessions uh, where without causing any damage or any pain. Really, I don't know if I'm causing damage. I probably am. Um, but so what I do is I'll do low bar box squats to the depth I can do without impinging, for the majority of the year, and then I'll transfer that very quickly uh, to to full depth back uh, back squats. Um, But but even that was more problematic in June than it was the last few meets I did. Um, So I'm starting to realize this isn't a sustainable strategy. So I'm probably going to be getting surgery um, pretty soon. Um, But my training has been very uh, bodybuilding focused, just using uh, front squat, uh, deadlift, and um, uh, bench press is kind of my my primary movements. And I know that after surgery I'll have to kind of rebuild my deadlift and my, my squat, but not too fussed about it, to be honest, because I've made some very good gains just kind of training more for, for bodybuilding lately, some more accessory work, a little more training volume, touching higher reps. Um, and also, it's made balancing things a little more easy. I don't have to worry about the Olympic lifts, because I've just kind of just set that to the side until after surgery, because that's really going that deep and at that velocity, and it's just not really ideal for, you know, jacked up hips. And I know you had, because I don't know how long you've had the pro card for, but you're you have a pro card in bodybuilding. Correct. I've had it for a very long time, very actually. Long time. So in 2011 uh, was my last show, and I did that in August. Uh, last, I think the second or last week, third or last week in August, I competed and um, won the overall in a small show, which happened to get me uh, pro status, or rather pro quali- qualification in the uh, INBA. Um, so my plan is, once the PhD is over and done with, to actually make my pro debut, um, And, uh, yeah, hopefully get on stage with the rest of the 3DMJ crew who are all uh, not just pro-qualified, but actually pros who compete as pros. So uh, that would be really cool to get on stage with the guys. That's been a long time since that.
2: Awesome. So you're going to take things more towards the bodybuilding side for now then?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think I'm also kind of right in between the 93s and the 105s. Like I have to, the last year or so I've had to cut weight to make the 93s. Um, sorry about all the, it's it quite
0: good idea. that it, the noise was perfectly timed with like, I'm, I'm between 93s and 105s. Uh, uh.
1: That, yeah. the train. That's the, that's the noise of my, my butt cheeks. Just being so thick. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting around like 97, 98 right now. And I'd like to try to get up to a hundred if I can make it not look sloppy. I probably won't push past that, but at the last meet I did, I had to cut from 98 to 93, which is a little more than I, I, I typically like and recommend, typically like 4% is the most I'll have people do for a two-hour weigh-in, um, and I passed out on my third deadlift, oh, which man. was, uh, yeah, I was about to lock it out. I think I still would have got an up-down command, so I don't think I actually left any kilos on the platform, because um, it was really like, it, I probably could have pulled 0.5 kilos less than that. Uh, if I'd stayed conscious, but um, <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, I, I started to realize that the, the you know five kilo weight cut is probably for me for a two-hour weigh-in more than I should be doing, uh, and th- and remind me there's a reason why I don't let my clients do that either. So uh, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. So uh, anyway, I, I've decided you know hey, I'm a bodybuilder uh, anyway, and um, I'm actually making 98 look pretty damn good compared to what it's looked like in the past, where it was just kind of like. Oh, you're, you're, you're thick. You know? <laughs> uh, so, um, so so yeah, uh, I think what prevented me from getting up that high uh, in body weight and having it look good before was I just couldn't really get the training schedule I needed with my data collection and, uh, and my PhD schedule. But now that I'm on the tail end and I have more time, I'm training five, six days a week for you know two hours plus and able to get in the training I need to... Um Support the calories I'm eating to support the size I'm getting to, so
2: it's cool that you've been able to adapt the way that you train as well around the hip, and then hopefully i, I hope if you get surgery that it um, opens up some more um some more options for you as well but um I suppose the bodybuilding will open up a whole new level of, uh, of stuff to play with as well, so hopefully you can keep things uh keep things moving.
1: So, yeah, for I think a big part of it's staying motivated as well. You know, like I, I would naturally go through periods where I'd be very very interested in powerlifting or a little bit burned out on the movements and and uh, you know struggling with the lack of progress, and then I would start to focus on bodybuilding, and I found they almost always helped one another. You know, um, so you know just I think taking a break, getting unmentally stale, maybe even putting on some sizes to help my potential strength when I go back to powerlifting, all those things kind of you know played hand in hand.
2: That's cool. It's something that I've, I've done some, uh, my last video log was just about kind of banging your head against a wall when you have a niggling injury. And rather than trying to just train through it, you know, just change focus for a while. If you're not going to be getting any stronger through the injury anyway, and potentially making it worse than, um, being able to have that flexibility and just do something else and enjoy training while, while you're healing up is always uh, more satisfying. So, um, uh, yeah, it's good to see that you've, uh, you've, you've done the sensible thing rather than, the, uh, the approach that I took, which was to d- delude myself for months, <laughs> trying to. Well, you're
1: you're, you're being very kind, but if you if you talk to me at the end of 2013, it was like, yeah, I've got a hip impingement, but I'm good. I'm just going to keep yeah. squatting three times a week. Heavy. That, that's familiar. And I turned <laughs> I turned a hip I turned a hip impingement into a labrum tear, and then I was like, oh, you know, I should train for other things. So, like, yeah, it wasn't. I'm not freaking Gandhi over here. I'm just looking <laughs> so. something I was going
0: to ask you about just before we go. Move, move on to something else is the, the position you described that you, you're over 93 you were you're what 97 or something 98 did you say yeah something just like
1: on that? the cusp of 97 98 depending on the day
0: so it's, it's i'm in well i have been in a very similar situation to my own body, body weight for a while and i know the more powerlifters as we coach the more i hear this topic being discussed of i'm kind of over my weight class i don't really know whether to get shredded and go either down a weight class or bottom of my weight class, and then sort of do this the classic reverse diet back up again, or whether to just keep eating and water cut down. And I'm wondering whether you have any kind of... Do you just YOLO it, and you're like, I'm not fat yet, so I'll just keep going. Yusuf's getting... Yusuf's stripping. Um, I don't know, not quite. Just getting bored. So just, <laughs> just get free, yeah. <laughs> do some press-ups. Um, so do you have any kind of criteria for, like... I'm a strength athlete, I'm going to do this with my body weight based on my body composition, so for people in a similar situation weight class-wise?
1: I think typically looking at it from the quantitative numbers is, is not the right answer, because people go, oh, I can be 9%, and then I can compete in a lower weight class. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but what do you have to do to be 9% all the time? Is that a sustainable mentality? Uh, is, is always tracking your food to some degree and, and being always slightly restricted is that level of stress conducive to... Being stronger, or even just, is that going to burn you out of wanting to do the sport? I mean, bodybuilders take long off seasons to compete every other year at the most when they're doing it right, in my opinion. Unless they're seasoned veterans who have a low settling point, so why would you expect that someone who doesn't even really want to bodybuild, who probably has less, you know, food discipline than a bodybuilder, Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, walk around, you know, five six pounds over, you know, stage weight all the time? So I think that's something that a lot of powerlifters kind of overlook, and they're looking more at the, the hypothetical elite status or medal placing they could get if they just maintain their strength and drop some body fat. Yeah. Uh, which often, A, is an assumption that they're not going to lose that much strength. And then B, uh, they don't take into account that psychological side of it. So the way I look at it is that um, if someone is within, say, 2 to 3% of being over, then maybe we should just try a water, well, I wouldn't even say a water cut, that makes it seem like that's all that's happening. Uh, But, you know, manipulating carbohydrate, sodium, water, in a one to two week period tops, uh, before each comp, uh, and experimenting, trying to find the right formula that minimizes any kind of detrimental effect to performance on the platform, uh, as a way of making weight. With the understanding that if the person is not an older, experienced lifter, um, that they may end up needing to move up to the next weight class just because, you know, they're going to keep developing. Um, if someone is well over that 3% range and they're not, um, you know, overweight in terms of body fat levels, uh, then I kind of just have to tell them, look, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, you, you could cut, you know, you can qualify once and cut and then just, you know, like like if you're a high-level lifter and you were like, you know, I actually can get... Uh, gold or a, a world qualification and represent my country if I was to cut down one weight class and it's not unreasonable um, I, I, I'll encourage person hey, let's go for it and see what happens, you know, and they often I've done that a few times and It's been successful, but it's typically not sustainable. It, it might mean the person has to spend most of the year at a higher body weight and then cut just for for one meet and then it makes qualifying harder, so okay. um it can work as a one-off type of thing. But I think most of the time, unless you're just kind of hanging around 2 to 3% over or you're over fat, um, moving down a weight class doesn't make as so much sense as people think it might. I think it's really
0: it's getting more and more common for people to drop weight classes when they're fairly new to the sport and you see people doing all kinds of complicated water-cutting methods to make weight and then they end up not even qualifying for nationals and, and stuff like that. And you think it's, it's a lot of pain to put yourself through for not a lot of reward, really, and you're just hampering your total and your wilts at the same time. But that's, so that's interesting. Yep. So you basically have like a like a cut off body weight wise, and anything over that, maybe move up a weight class.
1: Yeah, and more importantly, um, and you guys have had some experience with this, you know. Like I'm willing to experiment and try something with someone if they want to give it a go, um, and just see, you know, especially if they're mid between two weight classes and their body fat isn't too unreasonable and they have a good relationship with food. Yeah, you we know, can give it a ride. Uh, but at the same time, uh, with the understanding that that's going to be a learning process, and we may find out, hey, no, that was a bad idea. You know, we should definitely try to be an eighty-three versus seventy-four or something like that. So Eric um, did
2: that with me um, I was a, just <laughs> a couple of years ago, yeah, where I, I dropped from sort of eighty-two kilos down to <laughs> seventy-three point nine five, so fifty grams <laughs> under the limit post dehydration and everything Didn't, for a competition. Did you weigh
0: ninety-four point one as well? Then you just what? miss it.
2: Ninety-four point one. Sorry,
0: seventy-four point one. Yeah. Just rebound. Yeah.
2: No, so um, yeah, that was a bit later on. So I was, was seventy-six great. something, but yeah, so the that was at the high end of the of the range that you're talking about, Eric. And there wasn't there wasn't too much of a drop in performance, but I was at the end of a diet, pretty much bodybuilding lean, if you remember, and uh, mm-hmm. it was it was pretty grim. And I don't think um, it's it's quite traumatic, even being that lean and thinking i've got to get back there to compete again (laughs) and uh yeah so i think even just going through the experience and seeing the added stress that it puts on top of the whole competing experience and realizing that yeah i'm not a world level athlete so it's at the at the end of the day it's a bit of fun and if it's making this whole thing quite unpleasant just to squeeze out a few more
0: made you quite unpleasant as well made me quite unpleasant too yeah so (laughs) (laughs) i'm just joking i actually barely noticed but that was something we were gonna could maybe go. But that's that just because you're
1: a bad friend, really. Sorry. That's just because you're a bad friend, really. Well, I'm a terrible friend. <laughs> but that, that's besides yeah. <laughs> the point.
0: Like, he shouldn't have been that lean. Um, here's, here's a question, Eric, that might lead might lead down a, a line of discussion. What is your hmm. current, my fitness pal, day streak? Zero. Right. So Eric, it's been lovely speaking to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's it. Because I just you said something of like. In, in what you were describing of, about oh, you know is tracking your food every day in some capacity the right idea and it, mm. i know that you you tend to have a very flexible outlook on your diet tracking um kind yep. of what Yusuf alluded to there of the, the neuroses associated with dieting is that something you're deliberately you're deliberately taking a very lax approach with at the moment
1: yeah and i don't know that lax is is necessarily The best descriptor, because I think that gives the impression that my diet varies wildly and that I'm, you know, just yoloing and I don't care if I'm getting in, you know, one gram per kg of protein and all fat for the rest of the day. Um, (laughs) That that proper keto, you know, keeping those ketones low. Um, But uh, yeah, so to to give a little bit of background and perspective, um, from 2007 all the way through 2000 mid 2012. I had a streak that was, like, five years long, you know?
2: Formidable, um, yeah,
1: impressive. Um, and, you know, there were there were days I, I estimated and entered it. There were days I ate out and, and eyeballed as best I could, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I always tracked, and I got very used to that. Um, but I started to kind of realize that the whole reason we would track macros and take a quote-unquote flexible dieting approach which I at that time I thought was synonymous with you know I I FYM uh, was to allow flexibility. but if you are putting three numbers on a pedestal and rigidly following them, that is just another form of a rigid a rigid diet and, and it has its own and similar set of neuroses that come with it um, So I started to think you know the whole reason we do this and we teach people to track is to hopefully change their habits so if I have to keep, doing the thing that supposedly has changed my habits, have my habits really changed. Um, and uh, so anyway, I, I started to think differently about this and uh, decided to give it a go once I moved to New Zealand to not track. Um, and I, I came back to tracking for a 12-week study uh, back in 20, early 2015, I believe, um, as a part of a master student's project who I was supervising. I uh, was one of the subjects in the study. Uh, and uh, found that when I did my baseline tracking I was at uh, I want to say like 2.1 grams per kg of protein or something like that I had I was eating just under 400 grams of carbs and right around 80 90 grams of fat which was pretty much identical to my tracking that I used to do you know um, so it was uh, it was it was a good kind of check-in to realize that yeah I, of course I, I, I can't really not know what my nutrition and numbers are after five years of tracking, and um, it it comes down to, in my opinion, what is the least amount of variables you can track while still getting optimal results. Um, During contest prep, that might mean you're tracking for a bodybuilder, you know, carbs, fat, protein, uh, hitting a fiber minimum, ensuring a certain number of servings of fruits and vegetables, ensuring adequate water intake, um, and, you know, being pretty damn on point all the time and weighing your foods 95% of the time, you know, and the uh, other few times doing your best to estimate it. Um, but for the off-season where your body fat levels are high, uh, you are not going to see decrements in performance just from a 50-gram swing of carbs because it's not a 30-year carb intake. Um, you know, it, there, there's really no reason and no benefit, and potentially there's a detriment to being uh, that, that food-focused and stressed. Um for, for trying to do that. So with my competitive athletes, and, and like I did with myself, uh, typically what I do is they will track their macronutrients through, through a contest prep, and then as they come out of it, uh, we will, in a stepwise tapered fashion, uh, start scaling back to the point where they're tracking the least amount of things that they need to track. Personally, um, often kind of the end point would be just tracking body weight and getting an average, and uh, seeing the change in body weight as the surrogate for energy balance, that is, if they have a you know healthy relationship with a scale, which just can't be assumed. Um, and then the things that they struggle to get in habitually, uh, they track. So, for example, I tend to under-eat protein, and oddly enough, as a protein researcher, um, <laughs> when I don't keep keep some kind of mindful awareness of it. So, I keep a constant track in my head of what's the protein intake in my you know, each, each meal, and I figure out where I'm at by the end of the day. And that might mean I you know drink some chocolate milk before I go to bed. Um, to, to get up to my my target number, and I also ensure that I have a serving of fruit and vegetable a couple times a day because I, I tend to not do that if I don't as well. Uh, other people have to <clears throat> make sure they don't, you know, undereat on a different macronutrient, overeat on a different macronutrient. Uh, so it just depends on uh, where they're, you know, what habits they have or have not developed.
2: So this is precisely some of the stuff we wanted to ask you about. There's quite a few issues there as well. So you you tracked meticulously yes. for. A few years and then when you switched away you'd almost develop those sort of behavioral grooves to then still be eating the same targets even without tracking um and you, yeah i've heard you speak before about people almost transplanting the the neurosis of, of of other diets just onto those three numbers until they're just elevated and and then they still get all of the anxiety from the macros the things that are supposed to be more flexible and yeah, we, so we use a similar approach and I remember you going through that with me of gradually reducing the precision of tracking as well as the amount of tracking. We often find that people see that process as a source of anxiety in itself, just like the stabilizers on the bike are being taken away and they, um, they freak out. How do, you, how do you deal with that when somebody gets comfort from the act of tracking itself and how do you start to let them relinquish control? That was, that, was well, me. Not, that was 100% Yeah, me. yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, 100%. Um, and I think, I think many times you have to look at it as uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? So sometimes you – like some people are very comfortable and fine with a certain level of tracking uh, long term. And especially in some clinical populations, that may always stay. Like if you're talking about someone with a true eating disorder, some of the ways that that's treated is that they always have some kind of objective kind of quantifier. Um, so that they don't, you know, do something unhealthy. And that is as flexible as it gets for them. Uh, but, you know, more along the non-clinical side of it, like we're talking about, like, Johnny, like you experienced, um, is there's nothing wrong with leaving a certain level of tracking in if it provides the person only positives. Um, but it often doesn't, you know. Um, or it's a, it's a kind of a mixed bag. And when it's a mixed bag, that means you just have to kind of um, coach the person through that process if you're working with them and then uh, adjust the pace of the, that, that kind of tapered process. It, may, it can take very long or it can be pretty quick. I've had people, experienced bodybuilders who are so done with tracking afterwards and they're experienced enough to where they don't need to go through Okay, and now we're gonna go to plus or minus 20 grams. <laughs> and now we're gonna go to protein and calorie. They're just like, nah, like good girl. I'm good though. I'm gonna well. eat. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's kind of how the, the, it goes, right? Yeah. But no, I've had some experienced competitors who I've worked with who go straight from tracking within plus or minus five grams to eating whatever the hell they want, putting on 10 pounds within a couple weeks, and then eating normally, and they're fine. Um, and, uh, but I think when people see that and they want to emulate it, they forget what that person has done for years. Uh, and th- so they, you might look at my, my behaviors and be like, oh, that's kind of cool that he can just track and do that. I should be like Eric Helms. And then you're like, well, you, you have to remember that I did five years of, of I, if, if it fits your macros and tightly tracking. And I think um, one is not just a, a light bulb moment where I switched to something better. <clears throat> Literally, I only learned how to do it from doing that. That's how I can look at foods and know their macronutrient contact. Content. I um, habitually make better choices. I, uh, I, I don't. I think the only things that I really had to learn was to, or relearn, I should say, would be the sensations of hunger and f- fullness, which I just stopped paying any attention to. I was just eating by the numbers, and then being able to associate, um, you know, kind of my macronutrient intake and my calorie intake in my head with how full I feel, with how my scale weight's changing over time, uh, so that I can basically by feel know when I shouldn't be ordering the pizza at dinner Mm -hmm. but instead ordering a salad with salmon or something like that. Um, So yeah, I I would say, to get back to your questions, I kind of went on a tangent there, when you've got someone who is struggling with the process of becoming more flexible, a lot of times they need proof, you know, so they need time spent at, okay, now we're just doing protein and calories and after, you know, three months of them still progressing as normal in training and not seeing any any downside to their their body composition, that's when they get the emotional buy-in. which I don't want to speak for Johnny, but I think that's basically kind of how you experienced it was we had to give, give it some time. Yeah.
0: So that's everything for part one, of our interview with Eric. Hopefully you enjoyed some of the silliness and some of the questions we asked. We'll be touching on the same thing next week. So be sure to check in this time next Sunday for the remainder of our discussion about diet neuroses, as well as loads of other interesting things. Okay. We'll speak to you next time.